I am in a new spot. I moved over the last week. It's a little different background, a little bit lighter colors, which is nice. Yeah, closer to the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. You couldn't resist it for any longer. A little closer, a little closer, <laughs> but still far enough away that people are like, you live there? Yeah. It's LA cool, so funny, the, dude. The cool crowd isn't 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 buying the 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 Culver City vibes. So. <laughs> no, this is what's this is what's weird about LA is like everybody everybody is like so strong about their neighborhood, yeah. and they act like other neighborhoods are like so far away. Yeah, and it's like like I went I went somewhere the other day. It was a twenty minute drive, and they were like, "Why did you come all the way over here from where you live?" And I was like, "What do you mean? Why did I drive twenty minutes?" Yeah to come to a party like what are you talking about like yeah people are weird specifically seems to be culver city because even when i come out there and i'm looking at areas to stay and stuff there's like resistance when i mention culver city as an option then when you actually get there and you realize how close it is to everything it's like why was there resistance to this like it's not it's not an ideal area like you can you can get to you can get to hollywood fairly quickly you can get to Santa Monica fairly quickly, which are the two main areas that I'm, I'm in when I'm out there. And it's like, and it's convenient. There are grocery stores. It's not, it's, it's relatively clean compared to much of LA. Dude. And it's like super nice. Like it's a great, it's a great area too. So it's just one of those, it's one of those weird things. LA people are weird, man. They very, they're, they're weird. I can say that to you since you're not, you're not a name. When you say, when you say Beverly Hills to someone, there's like, Oh wow. And then you say Culver city and they're like Culver. And you're like, yo, the rent in Culver is actually higher than Beverly Hills. Like, what are we talking about? It's just, it's, it's weird. It's, it's weird. The social, the social dynamics there and the social like competitive energy there is so weird because so much of it is not built in logic. <laughs> it's not. No, not at all, dude. Not at all. It's like one thing, you know, we'll get into our news things, but this is just something I was puzzling about yesterday. I was I was talking with somebody who was more of your traditional kind of L.A. type and like, dude, I've been living by the beach. So uh, you, I can't tell you how long it's been since I was around someone who name drops all the time. Yeah. And I just, I was just like listening to him and I was just like, I, I got lost like in his story because anytime he mentioned someone, he had to mention five celebrity <laughs> names that that person maybe had some sort of affiliation with, but like maybe just like walked past them on the street one time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. And I was like, my head was spinning. I was like, okay, so you're telling me the story, but now we're talking about this movie. Now we're talking about this person. Now we're talking about this. Now we're talking about that. And I think like, I think there's some sort of like, like, like etiquette to it. If that makes sense. Like there's a name dropping, like formula that if you do it a certain way, these like Hollywood types are like, Oh wow. Like, Yeah. yeah, they're like, he must be successful. And this guy was doing it the right way for LA, but for everywhere else, you seem like a total yeah, tool. That shit frustrates the hell out of me whenever I come out there. That's the main reason that I can't 
I can't ever see myself living there. I was like, if I had to deal with these people every single day and couldn't get a break from them, I would, I would go crazy. <laughs> and then it's also a lot of this I, I realized too, is it gets magnified. Like when you're out in the evening, when these, you can sense it's, it's bad enough in like nine to five times, but when, the, when it's laced with the cocaine energy, that's heavy, heavy in Los Angeles and they get even more comfortable and the stories become even more disconnected and disjointed and over the top, you're just like, I, I can't keep up with you, man. I'm sorry. I'm not, <laughs> I don't even know what's happening anymore. It's bizarre, man. And especially in the music industry, you know yeah. it. Like music folks are always always a little bit out there. Yeah. It's 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 extreme. You know, it's it is the energy there, right? And you know, that's why I've always preferred New York's energy to LA's energy because of that. Because in New York, they're just like, I don't give a fuck about you. You don't give a fuck about me. Just keep it moving. You know what I mean? Until you get into those (laughs) social circles where those things matter, but it's not thrown in your face every single day. You know what I mean? If you can ignore, you can (laughs) avoid it if you you want to. There's obviously a flip to that, which is New York can be very overwhelming because it's, it's not as pretty and beautiful as, as, uh, as LA is obviously, but you know, people are better. <laughs> you know, it's like with we 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 have the writer strike on our agenda today. Like with that going on, um, it it's been a different vibe up here. Like you, there's definitely some tension in the air. The spot we went to was actually like a right by the, one of the studios, one of the lots, and um, it was just surprising to see how empty it was compared to how how you know these spots usually are, where all these film deals are going down. And, um, even in like, even in these, um, these like strikes, I don't know if you've seen some of the news around it, but universal, apparently like across the street from universal, there's some trees that the picketers were standing underneath and somebody went and cut all the branches off those trees so that they wouldn't have shade. That's crazy. Can you, yeah. Can you believe that? And that, that to me is like, this is the dumbest part of of um demonstrating is when people start to get vindictive about it because it's like allow these people to speak their minds to hold their picket signs give them comfort give them water you know what i'm saying like they're not disrupting anybody they're just asking for better treatment and one of the things that that i read that i thought was interesting is that bob Iger, who who made a comment last week that was not received well he said that he felt like the writer's demands didn't make any sense and he is making 400 times the amount of the lowest paid person in his company. And he's saying that. So I think there's just been like, this is a symptom of everything else going on in the world, but there's this massive disconnect. And I think the creative industries usually feel economic situations first, because there's been less money in those industries um, historically, and it's, it's less spread out historically, but you have a bunch of people that barely can make a living in doing, you know, what they're trying to do. And then also you have this weird dynamic happening, which is like the end of celebrity in a sense. So you don't have, you have a few stars from the previous era that can demand huge checks, but this whole new generation just doesn't get paid the same way. Yeah. I mean, in dissecting a problem, it's easy to pick a side based on emotions, right? But when you actually look at things through things logically, you see that there are there's a reality here of a pervasive problem um, 
that just hasn't been addressed properly and fixed on either side, right? Like, and you mentioned it, it's hard for the studios um, and the people to have the conversation with the people who are actually doing the work to, to create the art um, when they're getting paid ridiculous salaries and the creatives are not getting paid very much. Right. And then on the flip side of it, the creatives are looking at the industry and saying, okay, there are all these new content platforms. Now I can't even keep up with the number of streaming platforms. There are so much content being created. It's a natural economic reality that the value of each particular project is going to go down. That I think sometimes the economics side of it and the business side of it is hard for creatives to wrap their heads around because they only see the value of what they create versus looking at the bigger picture of the fact that this is actually a business industry, right? And I think there's 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 a reality that both sides need to need to see, right? Because more people are being employed now than ever before. There's more diversity in in what's being put out than ever before, but the amount of money um, may or may not be the same. I haven't dug into this enough to know, but I, I, you know, economic realities would would tell me that now that the cable, big cable subscription fees are down, now that movie theaters aren't making as much money, and that's been highlighted as well, like these big blockbuster movies have been failing to break even recently. Um, there's a reality that they're facing on their side that I think having a collaborative approach would make more sense in, in both sides explaining the realities of their situation instead of drawing a line in the sand and saying, these are the evil studios and we're the, we're the, the writers and, and creatives that are, and actors that are being taken advantage of constantly. There's, there's the rubber meets the road and you've got to meet in the middle somewhere. And I think that's, that's the issue with every negotiation and every situation where there are two sides is how do you get to a meaningful resolution in which both sides make some concessions, but it, it, it can't just be we're being we're the victims, you know what I mean? And I think that that's where the issue is here. You know, Bob Agar would do himself a, 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 a lot of favors if he said, look, yes, I get paid a lot of money, but my responsibilities are to every single studio, every single person underneath the umbrella at Disney, but I'm willing to take a 5%, 10% salary cut in the midst of this as well. But that's not really going to solve the problem. The problem here is much larger, it seems to me. And it's it's the reality of a changing industry, as you pointed out, um, where it's not just about blockbuster films. A lot of the, the shows and, and, and things that are taking off are the low-budget kind of opportunities that just take off. And I think what the creatives need to do is negotiate more upside in those scenarios for themselves where if some if a project takes off some sort of bonuses for the art actors and producers and others who are involved in those projects. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And one other thing that's important to know is that during a strike indie films can still be made with SAG actors and and all the like. So, if you wanted to make a film right now, this would be the best time to make a movie because you can make it indie. You can get huge actors to work at discount prices because there's nothing going on and they want to foster the community and keep creating. And you can sell that content 
to the Netflixes, all the streaming services of the world, because the strike is not with like, it's not like Netflix can't buy content. You know what I'm yep. saying? Yep. So I think, I think this is, you know, it's a huge opportunity for folks who want to get into film. But I think that if you're, you know, especially in the independent scene, but I think, you know, this is, this is the start of many other, I think, strike type of situations. This is happening um, worldwide that there's a lot of labor that's gathering to kind of make different statements. Um, I don't know if you saw that UPS is beginning to get in that direction as well. Um, the workers, the full-time workers there have been compensated. They're compensated quite well, but the part-time workers are compensated at a fraction of the full-time workers hourly pay. And they do the same kind of work in the, uh, when they're like moving boxes and stuff. So, um, you know, I think there's so many of these industries where the majority of like the difficult work is being done by people who don't feel like they're being compensated fairly for it. And I also think that like when you have somebody like um, an executive that's not likable, that doesn't stay discreet, like a Bob Iger type, like it just further sows seeds of resentment in, in, you know, between both sides. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's a harsh reality that's happening here. And I think also we're suffering from a general public um, that is encouraged um, to take stances based on personal opinions and personal emotions versus actually understanding a situation. That's what social media and Instagram has done to people is there's this perception out there that so many people are doing so well financially um, and that everything is easy you know, it's, it, life is easy that it's, it's, it's like, it should be easy to be able to attain this, the sort of success that you visibly see constantly. This was always an issue obviously before, but now the constant reinforcement, if you look at how brain, the brain works, the constant reinforcement of, inf, of images and certain images and lifestyles is going to have an impact even on the most well-trained and balanced brain, right? Um, and specifically, this is hitting a lot of younger folks um, who are 25 and under. And like, this isn't by accident, but the truth is, and this isn't knocking anyone's maturity levels, but the data actually shows that the frontal lobe of your brain doesn't fully develop until you're 25 or older in most cases, right? There are always outliers and exceptions to that rule, but that's the general norm. So you're also dealing with this where a bunch of information is being disseminated um, in, in, in very biased or ways to folks that cannot necessarily absorb the information and take an objective view of it. And then, you know, the other, the other side of this is, as you said, um, Partha is that the reality that there is this disconnect and the disconnect is getting deeper, but the solution doesn't seem um, to be there because we're actually dealing at a time to where we're close to a recession. So that even the idea that there is all this money out there is not, is not real. It's actually we're we're, we're economically in, in, in a more challenging time and Hollywood is, bearing the brunt of that. What, what is the future going to hold? And this change is scaring people. Um, and I think that fear is leading to looking for an enemy versus looking for an ally. Um, and 
as we know, most solutions don't come from, from, from conflict like this. They come from actually being collaborative unless they actually get physical and it turns into a physical war, then there are winners and losers, but we're not dealing with that right here, you know? So, yeah. And it, to your point on the market, like it's a, it's an odd market because it's definitely down. But the thing that's been tripping me up is that unemployment is so low. What, um, have you, have you thought about that? Like what, what's your take? Um, as an investor, I think about that all the time because it doesn't add up. Right. Um, but especially with what you're hearing with AI replacing employment force folks, and things like that. And I just feel like there's something here that um, in the reporting, in the actual formula in which they're using to deliver these numbers is either flawed or is, is, is being, you know, is, is being impacted in how it's analyzed, right? You can, you can, you can manipulate stats to tell the story that you want it to tell when that's not the reality. And I just feel like that may be true, but I also can say that I don't know too many people who want a job that can't have one right now. You know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, it's it's not like it's it's not like it's that hard to get a job these days. It's it's there's a lot of opportunity. Like I I was like I was just poking around just to see what's going on in the startup ecosystem and in corporate ecosystems and just like trying to get a sense of even like you know, are they, are they like hiring high paying positions? Cause there have been all these layoffs. Right. So I've been curious just to see like how companies are restructuring and there's a, there's a lot of like great positions that people are hiring for. Like you're, especially if you're in tech, if you're in tech, like you can make huge amounts of money still. And I'm just like, I'm puzzled by it, bro. Like uh, my, my gut tells me that if we are able to continue to move forward at, you know, roughly the same pace, it likely starts to accelerate again because the Fed has done a really good job with easing us through this whole process um, and raising the interest rates. And I think that if this level of interest rates, like fluctuating between, let's say like, you know, three and a half and like 8% interest is, you know, the new normal, then I think we're in a pretty good spot. Like I still think we could have a few more interest rate hikes, but the the unemployment piece is it like it, it is calculated based on people who are actively seeking a job yeah. so that's the other thing like we talk about this culturally like is everyone just trying to make internet money like is the entire new generation of working folks living at home and therefore not seeking a job and all trying to become influencers and living off their parents like i feel like the da- to your point the data we're not that. accurately seeing a picture of what's truly happening when we look at this data and we hear it on the news. I think you bring up a good point on, on that last piece because that's what the data is showing, right? Um, is that more more and more intergenerational kids are staying at home longer, living with their parents longer. And um, the reality is, is this economy that they live through is being supported by their parents' savings and their earning potential more so than the reality that there really is a a economy here in which you can sustain without a job right and then in the tech space specifically i think what you're seeing is a, a transitory phase there where a lot of like the rote work is being replaced by ai and they're creating a more efficient space but if you do have uh the technical skills and the technical skills to also understand the ai technology you can still be employed in those spaces, it's just a transition 
in the model that they've used um, that's probably going to create efficiency and employ less people. But if you do go through the process of going to school, and that's also the interesting thing here is that I believe the college uh, college rates are going down. The number of people, folks going to college is going down. But what the data is showing is that the jobs that you you will be able to have are by improving your skill set, but not by you know just just trying to take all the shortcuts to get there. Yeah, that's really well said. I don't think that I don't think that degrees even really no. matter anymore. There's there's no way to educate somebody on the types of tools that are being used in today's ecosystem in an institutionalized way, just because the, the, the landscape is changing so rapidly. Yeah. I think what the institutional side tells people, um, and tells employers is, you know, the reality is this, is that you can, if you are able to go to a school for four years, do the works, show up on time, do the work that's needed to get that degree, you become more likely to be a successful employee. Right now, there are other ways in which that can be said, because I know a lot of folks um, in many industries that utilize the Internet and tools like YouTube to become very proficient at skills without going to school. Right. Um, But the reality is this is there's no way around working hard like you can say, I don't want to go through the traditional route, but you still have to educate yourself and you need to have a structure in which you educate yourself on skills that are employable and, and that people will pay for in the new economy. Yeah, it's really well said. Um, what, uh, what, what's next? I think we got a couple sports topics here, right? Like, uh, again, we, you know, we like to analyze the data out in your back backyard. There's this, uh, the new Babe Ruth is, uh, is alive and in living color in, uh, in Otani. Um, I think he just hit his 35th or 34th home run. Um, while also um, striking out 10 or more batters in his last start. Um, the conversation around him is a couple of things. One is, um, can the Angels retain him? And then if they don't retain him as a free agent, how do you price a player like this who is essentially doing what Mike Trout is doing as a hitter and what Clayton Kershaw does as a pitcher? Like, you know, and those are the two names that come to the top of my head and saying, Okay, well, some people are saying, well, he deserves both salaries. He deserves a $400 million contract as a a hitter, $300 million contract as a pitcher, and that his new deal should be somewhere in the $700 to $800 million range. What are your kind of thoughts on this conversation and how you actually compensate such a unique talent? That would be amazing, dude. $700 million. That, that would be amazing. Um, I think, I think Shohei Otani is the best baseball player that's ever played. I, I, I don't know if you can, you can encompass the level of talent he brings to the table with any other comp. Like it's Babe Ruth. That's even, it. And, and Babe Ruth wasn't, wasn't throwing like this. He was a pitcher though. He pitched as well, but obviously not against the level of talent that, that this guy's pitching against. So. Yeah. So, you know, you've got your, you've got your baby. It's the only comp you can really make. Yep. And I, I still don't think it's a good one. I think Otani's Otani's on a different level. And, um, that, now baseball has its Jordan MJ argument for the first time, you know? Um, I mean, uh, LeBron MJ argument, but, uh, no, it's, it's a fascinating one. 
Um, I do have to say, I think the angels are just choking right now as an organization with the level of, like to, to, to have Mike Trout and Otani on your, both on your team and to be so garbage as an organization, it really says something to, you know, to your fan base and to everybody else. So, you know, I, I do think he'll end up major market just like, you know, we see this happen a lot in baseball. These players like just get bought up. He'll probably be like a Yankee or something pretty soon. But um, baseball is interesting because their salary structures are so different. Yep. I think when you compensate players, like you have challenges when you, when you, when your high end gets too high, I think it's like very similar to the strikes that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. When somebody brings that kind of value to an organization, if you don't have the salary caps and you don't have like a ceiling for them in terms of how much they can make, it just results in the smaller contributors in that organization not being able to be compensated well. So your floor falls out from under you in terms of quality of, of teammates that you're able to put around him, um, other than maybe people who are passionate about the sport. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a tricky situation. If we're talking like purely what does he deserve, he deserves as much money as he can get paid. I think that's that's yeah. the truth of it because he's captivating not only this country but the, the entire world right now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think you pay the man whatever he demands, he should get paid, right? Like, and and the reality is is that he he deserves the Mike Trout contract, and he's he's showing it on the field. He's earned it. Um, so there's no number that really. Um, doesn't make sense, but I, I do think we're going to see somewhere in the 600 to $700 million range. The interesting thing about him getting sweep, swept up by the Yankees or the Mets or one of these bigger name organizations is his personality type, right? He doesn't really like to talk to the media. The Angels have done a very good job of allowing him to be himself, not not forcing him to do much more, and then also having Mike Trout kind of be kind of the people person and the fan favorite allows him to kind of take this understated kind of role. And I don't know, you know, the grass might be greener financially, but maybe, you know, this is the right fit for him, right? In Anaheim versus in New York where the demands are going to be crazy. The media frenzy is going to be crazy. And this is a guy that shied away from that and the negative impact that that might have on his actual production um, it was an interesting thing to to evaluate and analyze as well. That's a good point. That's a good point. You know, I think this is the first time since, I mean, probably since I was a kid that I've been interested in baseball other than the Braves run and the Dodgers run in uh, the World Series. Those are the only other two times that I was interested, but I've never been interested in the regular season of baseball. And I think like, a player like this brings in brings in viewers from everywhere, you know, and, you know, we were talking about it in tennis. We're starting to see that power dynamic change as well with uh, with Djokovic being taken down. It's a great time in sports. Yeah, I mean, the, the Alcaraz thing was huge. If you're a tennis fan, essentially what, what you've dealt with is for probably the last few years, Djokovic having no competition other than COVID um, to his kind of reign of terror. <laughs> and <laughs> and also it just became less interesting not seeing any competition, um, seeing a kid, kid like Nick Kyrgios who has all the talent in the world but doesn't have the mental ability to really take on the challenge to see a kid like Alcaraz step into this willingly at 20 years old and say, you know, my path is to be great. 
you know, and owning his greatness and saying that obviously being surprised and shocked by the reality of that he's accomplishing this at 20 years old, but also owning it. Um, and then finally conquering the dragon because my position on him has always been, he looks great. He looks like an amazing talent, but if he can't beat Djokovic ever, then, you know, what's the point? And he did it in five sets, um, to Djokovic's credit at, at 38 years old, um, against a 20 year old, um, taking him to five sets. This kid really earned it. It wasn't like Djokovic choked this match away. He played very well as well. So yeah, you're, you're right. There is some excitement. We, we focus a lot on kind of the negative things, but if you look at what's happening in sports, the quality of athletes and the mental aptitude of these guys and their, their reality that they're, they're focused on their sport. They're focused on being great, not on all the distractions that, um, that come with being a rich, successful athlete is, is very impressive to see. Yeah. And I, I think we've seen the same thing in golf recently. There's a whole new crop of golf stars that are coming out of the woodwork. Um, you know, we just mentioned it in baseball. We, we talked about it a bunch in basketball. Um, I also wanted to ask you, V, in football, um, there were these comments made recently by a league exec about uh, the value of running backs and how they felt that they would only draft running backs but never would pay them a big contract. What were your thoughts hearing that? Yeah, I mean, the the reality of the football situation is this, is that um, essentially having... The, the front end of an RB's career is more valuable than the back end, right? And so the way that the NFL draft structure is set up is that if a running back is not drafted in the top 10, 15 picks and is drafted later in the draft, by the time he is able to get that big money contract, um, that teams are unwilling to pay. You're seeing Dalvin Cook, Ezekiel Elliott, Kareem Hunt, um, even Saquon Barkley and Tony Pollard not being extended anything beyond the franchise tag. And it's a very unfortunate situation because anybody who plays football knows that nobody goes through more punishment um, to help their teams than the running back. And so the NFL and, and Roger Goodell need to actually take a stance here in the sense that they need to adjust this for running backs where running backs get paid more commensurate with their skill level at the front end of their careers um, to solve this problem. How you do that um, with, with technically the way that they've structured the, the, the caps, the max salaries in the draft is, is an interesting one, but this is a conversation that the NFL needs to have and needs to address because if not just eliminate the position, you know, because these guys, I, and I know many former NFL running backs, like nobody and every other player will say it. They're the only position that every time they touch the ball, they get hit multiple times. Um, and they go through the punishment by which by the time they are 28, 29, that they, they can't do it. So just pay them more on the front end of their careers. You know what I mean? Uh, address it so that if a running back in his first couple of years has a thousand or fifteen hundred yard season, the teams need to renegotiate and compensate that person accordingly. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, to I totally agree with you. I think it's interesting. I don't, I don't know if anyone would have any issue with specifically running backs having a different initial initial contract structure in the draft, perhaps than every other position. Um, I think there's there's simple ways to do it that are not unfair to anybody. Cause I think it's pretty universally accepted that running back is the hardest position. Um, at the same time, 
I think it's really, really bad etiquette as an exec to speak on a position group that is in the line of danger to such a high degree in that derogatory of a way. You know, I think like in general, running backs deserve a lot more respect. And it's like disappointing that, um, you know, people are looking at them almost like taking advantage of these guys, right? That are willing to put their bodies on the line for the team and taking advantage of them financially just because they can. Yeah, it's 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 an unfortunate reality we see we're seeing over and over we're seeing with the Dame Lillard situation as well as you're dealing again this is the same thing we're talking about with the Hollywood strike, right? It's like the power lies in the owners and Roger Goodell's hands and everybody else just needs to get in line. You can voice your gripes, but unless they are willing to change, the change won't occur and that's that's always been the challenge historically of these power structures where power isn't very democratic. You know, it's, it's, it's held in a few people's hands and we expect them to behave in the interest of all versus their self-interest. And anybody who understands the basics of human nature understands that when given the opportunity, almost everybody will act in their self-interest. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, does that bring us to the close of our topics here? I think it does. I think it does. So we had a good, good conversation on, a, on many topics here. Um, sorry, we missed you guys last week. Um, some chaotic stuff happening in the, in the, in the background, but we're back on schedule and back on track. So, as always, stay moving. Be you know, Be this fly. Out of boys out.